Sudan Live Updates, Airstrikes Hit Khartoum Airport as Civilians Reel from Clashes. Victoria Kim Victoria Kim Christopher F. Shoots Christopher F. Shoots Cora Engelbrecht Cora Engelbrecht Elian Peltier Elian Peltier Declan Walsh Declan Walsh Declan Walsh Abdi Latif Tahir Elian Peltier Abdi Latif Tahir Declan Walsh Abdi Latif Tahir. Pinned. Fresh fighting erupted at the international airport in Sudan's capital on Wednesday as Sudanese army airstrikes pounded the sprawling complex and paramilitary fighters fired from the ground at the attacking jets, extending the chaotic clashes in the northeast African nation into a fifth day. The strikes on the airport in the capital, Khartoum, were likely an effort by Sudan's army to rout the rival, rapid support forces paramilitaries, from the compound. The fighting between the two sides, each loyal to a different general, continued to paralyze the capital and terrorize civilians a day after an announced 24-hour ceasefire quickly unraveled. One of the warring generals, Lt. Gen. Mohamed Hamdan, had called for the halt in fighting, with the army to allow civilians to evacuate or obtain desperately needed supplies. But shortly after 6 p.m. on Tuesday, when the fighting was meant to come to a stop, heavy gunfire and loud blasts rang out. Within hours, each side was accusing the other of violating the agreement. At least 185 people have been killed in the conflict, and the United Nations has warned of a humanitarian catastrophe. The true toll is likely much higher. The fighting over military installations and airports has spread in Khartoum and to several other cities in the north and west of the country. With Sudan now teetering on the brink of a full-fledged civil war, the conflict has derailed an internationally-backed plan for a transition to a civilian, democratic government after years of military rule. Here is the latest. Japan said it was mobilizing a military plane to evacuate dozens of its citizens from Sudan, becoming the first nation to announce such a plan. But it was unclear when or how the evacuation would take place amid the closure of the main airport in Khartoum to flights. The United States has said it has no plans for a government-coordinated evacuation and continued to urge Americans in Sudan to shelter in place. More than 450 people are stranded at the University of Khartoum, according to the International Committee of the Red Cross in Sudan. An unknown number of airline passengers and workers are trapped in the precincts of the main international airport, which has halted commercial flights. President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi of Egypt, Sudan's neighbor to the north, denied suggestions that Egypt was backing the Sudanese army in his first public remarks about his country's military involvement since the clashes began. He said the Egyptian forces captured in Sudan over the weekend had been present in the country for training. A diplomatic convoy carrying American citizens came under attack, but no one was hurt, Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken said. At least one senior European Union official was injured by gunfire and received medical treatment, according to people familiar with the situation. Three German A400M transport planes were scheduled to touch down in the Sudanese capital's airport at noon on Wednesday. But because of fighting around the Sudanese airport they were flying to, they remained in Greece, where they had stopped for refueling. Citing mission security, the German Defense Ministry did not confirm the cancellation. A Doctors Without Borders compound in the city of Nyala, the capital of South Darfur, was attacked by armed men who stole everything including vehicles and office equipment, the group, said on Twitter, on Wednesday. 
A warehouse with vital medical supplies was also raided, but the extent of the damage was not clear, according to the statement. The scene highlighted the peril of Sudan's urban warfare for civilians. Khartoum's airport is in the very center of the city, close to the Nile and surrounded by shops, restaurants, and densely packed houses. In a message, one resident trapped in a house a few hundred yards from the airport described the latest strikes as horrific. In the days before Sudan tumbled into a catastrophic conflict, its two most powerful generals came tantalizingly close to a deal that American and British mediators hoped would defuse their explosive rivalry and even steer the vast African nation to democracy. The stakes were soaringly high. Since 2019, when a popular revolution toppled Sudan's dictator of 30 years, a transition to democracy had been stalled by this pair of ruthless, squabbling generals. Now, a single issue was holding up an agreement to get them to hand over power. Foreign envoys held long meetings with the two generals, the army chief, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and the paramilitary leader, Lieutenant Gen Mohammed Hamdan, in an effort to get an agreement. Promises were made, concessions extracted. They even dined at the home of a senior general. But on the streets, the rival military machines were tooling up for a fight. At night, troops flooded quietly into rival military camps across the capital, Khartoum, where they marked each other like opposing players on a soccer field. Paramilitary fighters surrounded a base that housed warplanes from Egypt, a powerful neighbor that had sided with the Sudanese army. And when the first gunshots rang out on Saturday morning, the pretense of dialogue was instantly shattered. Now, fighting rages in Khartoum and across Sudan, already taking hundreds of lives and opening a volatile and unpredictable chapter for Africa's third-largest country. On Wednesday, a fresh barrage of explosions rocked the main airport and residents said they were running out of food, as fears grew that regional powers will be drawn into the conflict. The violence has led to debate and recriminations about how it came to this. Some in Sudan and Washington are questioning whether the foreign powers that tried to ease the generals out of power, the United States and Britain, but also the United Nations and African and Arab governments, are also to blame for the mess. Since the generals seized power in a coup 18 months ago, they say, foreign officials had deferred to their intransigence and threats, all the while sidelining Sudan's beleaguered pro-democracy forces. The generals face no accountability, said Khalid Kerr, a Sudanese political analyst. The abductions, disappearances, sham trials, unlawful detentions, the internationals turned a blind eye to all of that for the sake of a political process that has now gone horribly wrong. Although strikingly different, the two generals for years marched in lockstep. Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, 62, is a state four-star general, trained in Egypt and Jordan, who has commanded troops in Sudan's grinding counterinsurgency campaigns in the south and west of the country. Born in a village along the Nile, he embodies the officer class drawn from the riverine Arab tribes that have dominated Sudan since independence in 1956. Mohamed Hamdan, widely known as Hamidi, is in his late 40s and is a camel trader turned militia commander with a reputation for ruthlessness who steadily acquired riches and influence. The two generals forged their careers in the early 2000s in the violent crucible of Darfur, the western region where a tribal rebellion had erupted.
President Omar Hassan al-Bashir, then Sudan's autocratic ruler, sent General al-Burhan to help crush the uprising. He chose General Hamdan, then a leader of the notorious Janjaweed militia, to help with the fight. General Hamdan did the job so well that Mr. al-Bashir adopted him as a personal enforcer, jokingly referring to the commander as my protector and appointing him as head of the newly formed Rapid Support Forces. General Hamdan grew rich through lucrative gold mining concessions and his commission from sending thousands of troops to fight in Yemen, where the United Arab Emirates paid handsomely for his services. Backed by the European Union, his troops prevented migrants from crossing Sudan's long borders, even though General Hamdan was himself suspected of profiting from people smuggling. His career, the Sudan expert Alex Deval said, became an object lesson in political entrepreneurship by a specialist in violence. The two generals turned on Mr. al-Bashir in April 2019 as protesters clamored for his ouster in a revolution that inspired heady hopes for democracy. But two months later, the generals sent their soldiers to clear out the remaining protesters, killing at least 120 people in a grisly sign that the military was not going to cede power as easily as Mr. al-Bashir. That message rang even louder in October 2021 when the two generals joined forces to seize power for themselves, ousting the country's civilian prime minister. The coup came as a rude surprise to an American envoy, Jeffrey Feltman, who had met with General Alberhan and General Hamden only hours earlier and they had assured him they would not take over. But their deception cost them little. Soon, instead of being ostracized, the generals were being courted by Western officials who hoped to pry them from power. Sanctions that the United States had quietly threatened to impose on General Hamdan, targeting his financial interests in the Persian Gulf, were never imposed, said a former U.S. official with knowledge of those talks who like other officials in this article spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss sensitive politics. Some began to treat the generals as statesmen. In February, the head of the World Food Program, former Governor David Beasley of South Carolina, caused quiet consternation among Western embassies in Sudan when he was a guest at two consecutive public ceremonies. First, General Alberhan bestowed on him Sudan's highest civilian award, the Order of the Two Niles. The next night, he was the smiling guest of honor at a dinner hosted by General Hamdan. But then the generals began to fall out. General Hamdan worried that the army was being infiltrated by Islamists, including former loyalists of the al-Bashir regime, his sworn enemies. Military intelligence, controlled by General al-Burhan, began to tell foreign officials that his rival had tried to secretly import armed drones from Turkey to bolster his military force. Their rivalry also reflected deeply felt institutional frictions. Regular soldiers looked down on General Hamdan and his paramilitaries as a motley crew, a bunch of jumped-up yahoos from the sticks, not proper military men, as one Western ambassador put it. For their part, the Rapid Support Forces resented the perceived discrimination and believed it was their turn to hold power in Khartoum. They had a victim mentality, said Mohamed Hashem, a journalist who interviewed Rapid Support Forces leaders for Sudan State Broadcaster. People discriminated against them, ridiculed them, told them they are not Sudanese. General Hamdan began to position himself as a future leader, traveling the country, distributing gifts to friendly tribal leaders, portraying himself as a champion of the marginalized. 
he allied with political parties, advocated elections and bridled at any mention of his Janjaweed past or the role his troops played in the Khartoum massacre of June 2019. In December, Sudan's National Human Rights Commission declared General Hamdan as its person of the year, drawing a derisive reaction from many citizens. That same month, under pressure from Western, African and Arab countries, the generals agreed to hand back power to a civilian-led government as early as this month. But first they had to agree on key issues, notably how quickly their forces would merge into a single army, a process in which General Hamdan had the most to lose, because the rapid support forces would effectively be disbanded. Army leaders pressed to get the job done in two years. General Hamdan said it would take a decade. Tensions burst into the open. At one point, a senior Western official said, General Hamdan was barred from a key meeting led by General Al-Burhan at the presidential palace. He gained admission only after standing outside, literally banging on the door, the official said. Egypt entered the fray, on the side of the army. Critics worried the talks were flawed or going too fast. Negotiators said it was Sudan's best chance for the much-awaited transition to democracy. They were the guys with the power and the guns, the senior Western official said of the generals. We were trying to construct a political path to ease them out. According to a senior United Nations official, we worked with the tools that were on the table. Those tensions spiked last Wednesday, when troops from the Rapid Support Forces surrounded a military base in Mero, 125 miles north of Khartoum, where Egypt has stationed several warplanes, a flashing sign that war was looming. Yet, even then, foreign officials hoped the two generals would mend fences and surrender power peacefully. The talks to integrate their forces had come down to one final major point, negotiators said, the army's command structure during a transitional period. On Friday, Volker Perdas, the UN envoy to Sudan, dined at the home of Lieutenant Gen Shams al-Din al-Kabashi, the army's deputy leader, for after the meal that breaks the daily fast during the holy month of Ramadan. There was no hint of a coming war, UN officials said. Hours later, in the pre-dawn gloom, the first shots sounded across Khartoum. After three intense days of fighting, the head of the paramilitary rapid support forces in Sudan announced an important turnabout early Tuesday, a 24-hour ceasefire to assuage the pain that millions of Sudanese have endured. Yet throughout the day, Lt. Gen. Mohamed Hamdan's troops continued to battle the Sudanese army on multiple fronts, engage in looting and use civilian areas as defense positions, according to interviews with seven people in three cities across Sudan. In Mero, in North Sudan, RSF soldiers stormed neighborhoods near the airport early on Tuesday, took over some homes and began firing at Sudanese troops, a resident said. In the upscale Riyadh neighborhood of the capital, Khartoum, paramilitary troops placed missile launchers in front of homes to target the circling army planes, pushing families to abandon their residences. In Nyala, in the country's southwest, one resident said that the RSF continued to loot offices and markets. The rest of western region of Darfur is awash with rebel groups, and Mohammed Sultan, an activist in the area, said that other militias from out of town were looting, too. In Bari, a city north of Khartoum, forces with the paramilitary group threatened workers who were trying to restore water services on Monday, according to the Khartoum State Water Authority. 
On Tuesday, residents said they still didn't have running water. In the Kafuri neighborhood of Khartoum, RSF soldiers also prevented repairmen who had wanted to fix electric poles on Tuesday, according to a resident of the area and screenshots of the neighborhood WhatsApp group reviewed by the New York Times. The Sudan Animal Rescue also said that a member of the paramilitary force had stolen one of its vehicles on Monday morning. It was shocking, said Mutis Kamal, a volunteer with the center who said he had reviewed footage of the attack. He broke the windows and just drove away. Just like that. When Azil Ibrahim and her family woke up in southern Khartoum to the sound of gunfire on Saturday morning, they found themselves trapped in the middle of the fighting that has been tearing Sudan apart ever since. Gunshots pierced through windows as if they were coming from everywhere, she said. Since electricity was cut off shortly after the fighting began, Ms. Ibrahim and her family quickly ran out of food and water. We quickly realized that we would either die from gunshots or from hunger, said Ms. Ibrahim, 20, who lives in Khartoum with her parents and brother. The home is close to a camp of the Rapid Support Forces, a paramilitary group at war with the Sudanese army. There was no other way but to evacuate. Like millions of residents stranded in Khartoum, the Sudanese capital that is at the heart of the struggle between two competing generals, Ms. Ibrahim and her family spent several days sheltered at home, unable to go out. Street fighting and airstrikes have made it nearly impossible to move across Khartoum, trapping residents in their homes and students in classrooms or in dormitory houses. Many of them are struggling to gain access to dwindling supplies of food and medicine. More than 450 people are also stranded at the University of Khartoum, according to Germain Weyo, the spokesman for the International Committee of the Red Cross in Sudan. An unknown number of airline passengers and workers are trapped in the precincts of the main international airport, which has halted commercial flights. For those trying to flee the country, heavy damage to the airport has pushed countless families to formulate strenuous trips by road. But traveling by car is also risky, and one neighboring country, Chad, has closed the border. But there is no safe land road, said Rana, a 29-year-old pharmacist who is expecting a baby this summer and was planning to fly to her native Saudi Arabia on Saturday. Rana asked to be identified by her first name only for fear of reprisals. Mr. Mweu, from the Red Cross, said that people could not be evacuated from Khartoum and that many parts of the city were left without water and electricity. Still, on Monday Ms. Ibrahim's family was finally able to leave their home around noon, but only after her father, she said, ventured outside to talk to soldiers from the Sudanese army, who later let the family's land cruiser pass. Ms. Ibrahim, a freelance graphic designer and an office manager at an information technology company, had relocated temporarily to a relative's home in the Khartoum suburb of Al-Kalakla, where the atmosphere was quiet, she said. Some people are almost living normally in some parts of Khartoum, Ms. Ibrahim said. Others are living through war. In many neighborhoods, residents are not safe at home. Fighters identified as belonging to the Rapid Support Forces paramilitary group have looted households, held civilians at gunpoint on the street and assaulted the European Union's ambassador in his home. In Rana's area, near the airport, RSF fighters were, as of Tuesday evening, controlling the street where she lives, she said. 
Like millions of others, Rana remained stranded in Khartoum, sheltering behind a mattress, with neither side observing the ceasefire that was supposed to go into effect Tuesday night. Ms. Ibrahim said she did not know how long she might be away from home. She said she had taken some of her most valuable belongings, a Hello Kitty chain, Polaroid pictures, a few books, including one from the Sudanese writer Tayeb Sali, and her three cats. We may go back home at some point, she said, and not find anything behind. The fighting in Sudan between rival leaders and the armed forces erupted at a significant moment for its Muslim-majority population, the last ten days of the holy month of Ramadan. During Ramadan, Muslims abstain from food and water from dawn to dusk and engage in reading the Quran and helping the poor. The last ten days are considered the holiest in the entire Islamic calendar because they bookend the anniversary of the evening when the Quran was revealed to Prophet Muhammad. Because of that, Muslims double their efforts during those days by giving charity, studying religious texts and staying in mosques for longer periods as part of a practice known as itikaf. On Saturday, the timing of the armed clashes in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, and other cities shocked many African leaders who called on the rivals to put down their weapons and let citizens enjoy the holiest period of Ramadan. Musa Faki Mahamad, the chairman of the African Union Commission, called on both groups to immediately stop the destruction of the country, the terrorization of its people, and the shedding of blood during the last ten days of Ramadan. Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abi Ahmed, said in a statement that the clashes violate the ancient Sudanese norms and values because they come in the last days of the holy month of Ramadan. Kenya's president, William Ruto, concurred, saying that all differences should be addressed through dialogue. For the sake of the security of the people of Sudan and stability in the country and the region, especially during this holy month of Ramadan. In Sudan, Ramadan is considered a joyous celebration, with families and friends coming together to share foods like samosas, dates, sweet tea and asida, a semolina-based flour dish. But for many Sudanese, this Ramadan comes during an arduous period, with the country facing food insecurity because of poor harvests, steep food prices and a spiraling economic crisis. More than 15 million people across the country are experiencing food shortages and rampant inflation, said Islamic Relief, the non-governmental organization. On Saturday evening, as the hour to break the fast got closer, gun battles in parts of the capital quieted, several witnesses said. Residents who were stuck in their homes all day then rushed out to buy bread, dates and watermelons to quench their hunger and thirst. After starting as a camel trader who led a feared militia accused of atrocities in Darfur, Lt. Gen. Mohamed Hamdan has steadily amassed influence and riches in Sudan over the past two decades as he rose toward the pinnacle of power. Even when his one-time patron, the autocratic ruler President Omar Hassan al-Bashir, was ousted by pro-democracy protesters in 2019, Gen. Hamdan turned it to his advantage, swiftly abandoning Mr. al-Bashir and, in the past year, reinventing himself as a born-again Democrat with aspirations to lead Sudan himself. At the same time, he allied himself with Russia and its Wagner private military company, whose mercenaries guard gold mines in Sudan and which has supplied military equipment to his forces. But General Hamdan faced perhaps his toughest challenge yet on Saturday, as fighting raged across the capital between his powerful paramilitary group and the Sudanese army under General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. 
This man is a criminal, General Hamdan said in an interview with Al Jazeera on Saturday, lashing out against General Al-Burhan, the army chief who until Saturday was technically his boss and is now his mortal enemy. This man is a liar, General Hamdan continued. This man is a thief. He destroyed Sudan. The army hit back, with a spokesman disparaging General Hamdan a rebel. But the heated language brought home to many Sudanese that, despite his earlier talk about democracy, General Hamdan, a commander with a long record of ruthless action, was literally fighting for his future. And it was a reminder of a depressing reality, although protesters ousted the widely reviled Mr. al-Bashir in 2019, the military leaders who thrived in his brutal system of rule are still fighting to dominate the country. General Hamdan cut his teeth as a commander with the Janjaweed militias that carried out the worst atrocities in the western region of Darfur. The conflict, which began in 2003, displaced millions and caused the deaths of as many as 300,000 people. His ability to crush local rebel groups won him the loyalty of Mr. al-Bashir, who in 2013 appointed him to lead the newly created Rapid Support Forces. After protesters flooded the streets of Khartoum in early 2019, roaring for Mr. al-Bashir's ouster, General Hamdan turned on Mr. al-Bashir, helping to push him out of power. But two months later, in June 2019, when protesters demanding an immediate transition to civilian rule refused to leave a protest site, General Hamdan's rapid support forces led a brutal assault. His troops burned tents, raped women and killed dozens of people, dumping some of them in the Nile, according to numerous accounts from protesters and witnesses. At least 118 people were killed, according to Sudanese medics. General Hamdan denied any role in the violence and bristled at those who referred to his fighters as Janjaweed, despite the militia's key role in his rise to power. Janjaweed means a bandit who robs you on the road, he told the New York Times. It's just propaganda from the opposition. Since then, the Rapid Support Forces has evolved into far more than a gun-toting rabble. With about 70,000 fighters by some estimates, the force has been deployed to quash insurgencies across Sudan and to fight for pay in Yemen as part of the Saudi-led coalition. War also made General Hamdan very rich, with interests in gold mining, construction and even a limousine hire company. He has also emerged as a surprisingly agile politician, traveling across the Horn of Africa region and the Middle East to meet with leaders and developing close ties with Moscow. One of the rival factions of the Sudanese armed forces fighting on Saturday is led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, a powerful military commander who has for years been a de facto leader of the African nation. Little known before 2019, General al-Burhan rose to power in the tumultuous aftermath of the military-led coup that ousted Omar Hassan al-Bashir, the authoritarian leader who was deposed after popular uprisings in 2019. Then the Inspector General of the Armed Forces, he had also served as a regional army commander in Darfur when 300,000 people were killed and millions of others displaced in fighting from 2003 to 2008. General al-Burhan had been closely aligned with Mr. al-Bashir. But when Mr. al-Bashir was ousted, his defense minister, Lt. General Awad Mohammed Ahmed ibn Auf, took over, pushing protesters to demand for his resignation. When General ibn Auf stepped down, General al-Burhan replaced him, becoming the most powerful leader of the country in a tenuous transitional period. 
General al-Burhan then went on to progressively tighten his grip on Sudan. After civilians and the military signed a power-sharing agreement in 2019, General al-Burhan became the chairman of the Sovereignty Council, a body that would oversee the country's transition to democratic rule. But as the date for the handover of power to civilians got closer in late 2021, General al-Burhan seemed reluctant to hand over power. As tensions rose, Jeffrey Feltman, the U.S. envoy to the Horn of Africa at the time, arrived in Sudan to talk with both sides. Despite his differences with the civilian side, Mr. Al-Burhan gave no indication that he wanted to seize power. But on October 25, just hours after the U.S. envoy left, General Al-Burhan detained Abdallah Hamdok, the prime minister at the time, in his own house, blocked the internet and seized power, effectively derailing the country's transition to democratic rule. Two weeks later, he also appointed himself the head of a new ruling body that he promised would deliver Sudan's first free election. But that did not assuage opposition groups and civilian protesters who continued to pour into the streets every week to demand his resignation and the end to military rule. In December 2022, the military, represented by General Al-Burhan and a coalition of civilian pro-democracy groups, signed a preliminary agreement brokered by members of the international community to end the political standoff. But that deal did not satisfy the demands of some civilians who continued to protest, or his biggest rival, Lt. General Mohamed Hamdan, the leader of the Rapid Support Forces, a powerful paramilitary group. 